I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Supreme Assembly of the Sangha to set a clear foundation and motivation for my practice. I give rise to the noble heart of bodhicitta. I offer gratitude and homage to my teacher, Harmasonam Rinchen. I offer homage to the abbots of the monastery, my respect and regard for the priests and the practitioners and the community here and everywhere on Zoom. I offer gratitude to the spirits of the land and the elements, all beings seen and unseen. Thank you to Myoyu for teaching body practice and thank you to you for practicing your body taking care of the Buddha. Today is Saturday, right? Yeah, so day after tomorrow is my teacher's birthday, I think. <laughs> he has it written down a couple of different ways in different places. But he's about Hogan Roshi's age. Very old. <laughs> so I would like to ask if you would remember him in your practice. I will uh, dedicate the merits of this retreat from my practice to him. And really, that's a way of dedicating it to all beings, because as long as I've known him, is almost 30 years. He has not done anything at all with his life that wasn't to benefit others, not that I'm aware of. So if you would put your frosting on that cake, I would be so <laughs> grateful. Thank you. He's an interesting character. He was a philosophy major from Berkeley University. And he owned a candle and incense factory in San Francisco in the 60s. And he made every piece of equipment in those factories by hand. And then he and his wife, who was a wonderful artist, and a couple, maybe three or four kind of crazy hippie friends bought a cheese and coffee shop. I mean, that was their intention. It was called Cheshire Cheese. And they had the extreme and completely accidental good fortune to buy a building just down the road from the French embassy. <laughs> and so every time the French embassy had a meeting, they came to buy cheese. And Michael is fond of saying, in the beginning, we didn't know anything about cheese. <laughs> and so everything we knew about cheese, we learned from the people at the French embassy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but eventually they sold that business and Michael and one of the other few owners went on three-year retreat and he became a Lama. And seven or eight years after he got out of retreat, he came to Portland for a visit and they talked him into moving to Portland. And he became the resident Lama at Kagyu Jungshuk Chuling, KCC, which is the center where I practiced and studied for more than 20 years. I like thinking about all that. So now you have so many practices for the four immeasurables. And after retreat, we will send you some links to some handouts and audio files, things to help you with your practice. Or maybe you will practice these immeasurables in your own way, completely without those supports, which is also very wonderful. As far as I know, so it may be different for you, but the practice of the four immeasurables is a long path. You can't practice the fruition. This is a little tricky to say in this particular case, but in practices in general, let's say for the practice of patience, you can't just try harder to be patient is not quite how it works. So with compassion, for example, one can try to give rise to compassion. But in the way that I was trained, we say you find the proximate causes of compassion. What causes compassion to arise? And then you practice those things and the compassion arises. So that's kind of like the story that I told the other day about you can't cause an apple tree to bloom or a bean to sprout. You, you do everything necessary to cultivate the causes and conditions for that thing to happen. And then that thing happens on its own time. So there's a little bit of you have to let go. You have to trust somehow in, in the practice that if you practice with diligence and if you practice with heart, and if you practice with correct intention, that the practices that you are given will give fruition to whatever the outcome for that practice is. This is so much of a point in the Tibetan tradition that we are told, if you want to realize Mahamudra, you can't do it. Can't. You will realize Mahamudra only in one way, and that is through the blessings of the guru. And then I heard it's that way for all practice. So I thought, that's great. I have a really generous guru. I'll just get those blessings, and this is going to be good. Oh, it was about five or six years before it dawned on me that the way to get the blessings of the guru was through ardent practice. So I'm not sure if that's a front door or a back door, but I thought it was a mean trick. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it takes a long time. Sometimes I complained to my teacher on three-year retreat, and I would say, I started so old, I was about 30-something when I started practice, and maybe it's too late. 
it's a shame. And he'd say, don't think like that. You don't know. Maybe you practiced in the last many, many, many lifetimes, and you could be right on the verge of enlightenment. So never think too late. This path is arduous, but it has a lot of surprises and pleasantries along the way. Little limitations to our compassion, our loving kindness, our equanimity, our joy. They unfold along the way, sometimes big shifts, as you know, I'm sure, in your own practice. One of the most beautiful and most immediate fruitions, I think, is the experience of ease. We're just able to relax a little bit as we trust the practice a little bit. Not because of what someone said, but because we see the efficacy in our own heart and it's encouraging. It's nice to see a little progress and though we can't depend on it any day, if we look back over our shoulder five years, ten years, we're different. As we practice these particular practices, along with that ease, there's joy and the ability to love. Envy and cynicism wane slowly, slowly, slowly carved away. Craving, grasping, hostility are reduced. And maybe one of the most pleasurable fruitions is that we are gradually better able to love and to serve other beings. And if your path is a bodhisattva path, this is so helpful. It's satisfying to live your most cherished values. So when I practice, I have a kind of mechanical mind, I think. Not big mind, but the thinking mind. I like to understand the practice conceptually. When I do this a little bit, what's the first domino that might fall over? And what impacts that? And what if I have this little hurt spot over here? What do I pour on that? to make it a little better, or if I'm weak here, how can I compensate for that in the practice? So I don't know, this is probably true, since these are kind of Mahayana practices, that this is also in your tradition like this, but I always draw out a chart of what is it that I'm practicing, and what are the fruitions of that practice, What's the proximate cause, the immediate cause of that fruition arising? And then there are these things called the near and far enemies. I love that phrase. The near enemies are the wannabes. So wannabe compassion. Looks like compassion, but not. <laughs> kind of the close but no cigar. And really, I always, when I get a new practice, I go and read the near enemies because they are always the first potholes that I trip in. And some enlightened person somewhere along the way tripped in those same potholes and said, I should write these down, because if I tell other people to watch out for these, they might not fall in them in the first place. And those are always in the, the documents we call the commentaries. And then there's this other thing called the far enemy, which is the complete opposite. And more than once, 
I've accomplished the complete opposite of a practice and had to go background and try it again. And then there's this thing called the guardian, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. You can find all of these things in many contemporary books. There are so many books on the four immeasurables. I like Alan Wallace's book um, on the four immeasurables. I can't ever remember titles. You'll have to Google it. And I like Buddhaghosa's fifth century text called The Path of Purification, which is a giant book, 830 pages. If you can lift it, you can read it. It is just huge. It's so intimidating, but actually it's quite, quite readable. And there is an entire chapter on the four immeasurables. So let's go through this list of what the immeasurable is, what its cause is, and so forth, and see if there might be something there to kind of help us see how the pieces of this path fit together. So what is equanimity, for example? Equanimity is that even-mindedness, the mind in balance. I think of it like a gyroscope. What is it that no matter what happens on the outside, the mind is upright? Some people would say that's even-heartedness or impartiality, and I think that would be right, too. What we're saying is that it's unobstructed by attraction, aversion, and indifference. So what's the proximate cause of equanimity? What's the thing without which equanimity wouldn't happen? And in Buddha Goza's text, written in the fifth century, he says it's, for taking re- it's taking responsibility for your own experience. So we begin to develop equanimity when and if we take responsibility for our experience. So my translation of that is that it means in part not blaming, not relying on blame to account for our experience, not seeing the causes of suffering as out there, And this is not in any way denying that there is injustice or suffering in the world. This is instead choosing to address that suffering at its deepest leverage point, which is inside, not out. In the case of equanimity, which is the foundation for the other three immeasurables, This is no easy task. I think the job one, if I could use a business term for that, the job one of beginning to take responsibility for our own experience is that we have to relinquish our allegiance to the causes of suffering. You can't not like the suffering, but love the things that cause it, it won't work. So many of you in this room are monastics and you know a lot about that. This is renunciation. It's not difficult to renounce something. It doesn't require discipline necessarily to renounce something if you're clear between the causes of suffering and the thing that you're renouncing. 
So if you're renouncing something and you can't see in any way how it affects your suffering, then it's difficult and it does take an act of discipline. But if you lie and you see that your lying hurts you or it hurts others and their hurt hurts you, then it's a little easier. Shantideva described it, and this sounds so much like a rock and roll era phrase. I can't believe that it came out of a document by Shantideva, but he said, sentient beings like to lick the honey from the razor blade. And I think he's saying that they like the sweetness of the honey. They're magnetized to that. But underneath that honey is the sharp edge of suffering. And they don't understand. And so they go back and back and back to the cause of the suffering. So what's the near enemy of uh, equanimity? Cold indifference. So as we release attachment to something, for example, there's some risk that we could just become coolly indifferent, a kind of the difference between I don't mind and I don't care. That is not equanimity. I asked Alan Wallace about this once. I, I said, doesn't equanimity, this is early in my practice, doesn't it make you uncaring? It sounds so flatline. And he said, no, 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 it's not like that. And my teacher teaches this as well. It's like you, you find your love where, where the love for another being is the greatest in your life and you lift it all up to that bar. I found that helpful. But if we're not careful with equanimity, if we don't bring discernment to our practice, the energy of equanimity can disintegrate into attachment and aversion. Aversion to those we perceive as different and attachment to those people, experiences, or places that fall inside the narrow bandwidth of our liking. So that's the far enemy of equanimity. It takes you in the opposite direction that you set out to go. So what does it look like as it begins to flourish? Again, this is from Buddha Goza. The mind is in balance, it craves less, grasps less. The wholesome qualities of mind shine into that openness and we begin to enjoy our natural state. And I would say then we can relax. We can obsess less and lighten up a little bit. And equanimity is kind of a three for one. So when you have equanimity, then it's easier for loving kindness and compassion and joy to arise. So that's the matrix of relationships for equanimity. And next is loving kindness. So what is loving kindness? It is the heartfelt yearning and a vision, a bodhisattva's vision for oneself and others without preference to experience happiness and the causes of happiness. So no one left out of that equation. So on that foundation of equanimity, loving kindness is enabled. And this is only one way to teach it, but the way that our training unfolded. 
So in the case of loving kindness, what is its proximate cause? I like this one so much. The proximate cause of loving kindness is to see the lovable characters in others and the lovable characters, characteristics in oneself. The worst of the worst of worst people, at the very least, their lovable characteristic is their Buddha nature. If we remember that, there's no one who can be exempt from our loving kindness. But on top of that are piled so many beautiful characteristics. Kisei mentioned some the other day, just this person walks carefully in the shrine room. This person looks at the little birds and their face is filled with light of joy. And this person picks up a piece of paper off the floor. All of these million, million small things make someone lovable. Kisei also called it appreciative, appreciating qualities, someone's qualities. When we want to love people, what is it that keeps us from appreciating their qualities? Mostly, I think it's story. In the exercise, the contemplative exercise for equanimity that we did on the first day, we took a neutral person. And if you did that exercise, you built them up to be positive. Oh, they said hello. Oh, they have a button about something that I agree with. Oh, they wear a natural fiber sweater. Oh, they wear their hair with a purple streak over here, like me. You know, all of these things. And then you like the person. But sitting in the privacy of your own meditation room, you can then visualize that person and experience that likability. And one by one by one by one, you can add negative qualities and oddly enough, and three or four people remarked on this in Sun Zen, you can feel the valence of your affection for them go the opposite direction. So this is not superstition. I don't think you harm any relationship by playing with the mind. We do this all the time. One of the other problems with loving kindness is we tend to ignore impermanence and we freeze frame people in pastoral care meetings with families more than a dozen times I've heard someone say to someone they've been married to for 30 years you are not the person I married <laughs> true that would be cool if you could do that <laughs> preserve your husband at 25 my husband might have liked that but it's not how it works. And it ignores the fact that we are also not the person who married the person that isn't the person you married. <laughs> this freeze-framing people, which was also part of that equanimity, is one of the options that you can do in the equanimity exercise, is incredibly powerful. We even freeze frame ourselves. We can tell a story to ourselves 
that was born when we were three and we can keep telling it and keep telling it and we can set a, a rule book for ourselves about how to live that's based on the experience and the life and the mind of a three-year-old and we can die with that story intact and it can follow us lifetime and lifetime and lifetime. But as practitioners, we don't have to do that. We can drop that story. Almost all of us have some kind of a self-story. We would like to love ourselves, and we'd like to be able to love others, but we built some story that prevents that. And when I see those stories in my own mind, and I do see them still, I ask myself the question, would you like to put that down? I remind myself, do you know you could put that down? You don't have to carry that story, and you don't have to be carried by that story for the rest of your life. I feel so tender towards that process. How do you do that? Part of it is you can sit in meditation and cut the story, drop the story. So in our tradition, we have Manjushri who has a flaming sword. So if you can't cut the story, you can call on Manjushri and just visualize this story being cut by the flaming sword of wisdom, which is really just a way of saying, drop the story. And then we just rest, which Zen teaches so beautifully. You just rest in the truth arising breath by breath. And then you don't have to talk to yourself about whether or not the story is true. You just see for yourself, it isn't real. It's not what's happening. If you had compassion, would you see it? If you got compassion, would you see it? If you had loving kindness, would you see it? Not if you're looking through a story. So what's the near enemy, the facsimile of loving kindness? It's self-centered attachment. I love you because I like the way you love me. I love you because you match the form that people, you know, I, well, I like to put them in. I love you because you entertain my mind and that's helpful when I need to be distracted. So that's the degradation of the energy of loving kindness into a self-serving tool, which is the opposite direction that we want to go. So what does loving kindness looks like as it begins to flourish? I think probably everybody in this retreat knows that. Ill will goes down. This is Buddha Goza. Anger with others is less frequent. And when it does happen, it's shorter. We're more friendly and more warm-hearted. We feel more at ease and we appreciate other people more, appreciate ourselves more. So what about compassion? Compassion, again, is also a heartfelt yearning and a vision, a personal vision, or maybe it's an impersonal vision. 
for oneself and for others, all others, to be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And then in the case of the Bodhisattva path, I think there's this peace. I'm not sure this is referenced in Buddha Goza in the same place, but I feel this is true. There's this other piece, which is the question, what can I do about this suffering? It's an action plan. What's the proximate cause? I know this is a little bit like a college class, the way it's sounding, but all of this rolls out in experience. What's the proximate cause of compassion? It's seeing that all beings want to be free from harm. Everybody. Tiny little amoeba. If you poke it, we had a thing in biology, you could poke these little small one or two, I don't remember, small-celled animals, and they go <laughs> like that. It's unbelievable. And then you look again, and you're under your microscope with a big giant microscope, and then you poke the little thing, and they go <laughs> like that. All beings want to be safe. All beings want to be free from harm, though some are very confused about how that might happen. I once babysat a little boy. He was three years old. His name was Gary. I love this little guy. And Gary came in one summer day into the kitchen, and he said, Julia, because that's my name in those days, I'm, it was a summer day. It was about 90 degrees outside. I need water. I said, oh, Gary, we, we need to get you some. So I made him some water. His little cheeks were flushed so red, and he was sweating. And he said, I need my coat. <laughs> and I said, for... And he said, I'm cold. I have to do something right now. And I said, no, Gary, you're not cold. You're hot. No, I'm cold. I need my coat. So you can't really say every three-year-old has a right to sovereignty, your life, your call, which is what I usually say to adults. But, but I said to Gary, okay, we can put the coat on you. I'm thinking heat stroke, his parents will kill me. So I put him in the coat and I zip him up and he goes out in the yard and I look up about five seconds later and Gary is just laying like, <laughs> I'm thinking, he's dead. <laughs> Suffering, it comes from confusion. <laughs> Even Gary finally figured by the time he was four, he had that part figured out. <laughs> and the sad thing is that the confusion that we create and don't take care of in this life follows us. And we plant seeds of confusion for other people. And it has all kinds of spin-off effects like fear. We say in the Tibetan tradition, one of the greatest gifts that a bodhisattva can give another being is to relieve fear in any of its forms. It's better than material things. It's better than teaching. We relieve their fear because who can practice the Dharma if all they have is fear? And of course, the greatest way to relieve people's suffering is to lead them to liberation or to give them the tools to lead themselves even better to liberation. So if in some small way we can contribute to someone's awakening, 
This is one of the treasures about being on a retreat. Someone mentioned this in Sanzen yesterday, or being here at the monastery. The community is so supportive that we are allowed. We are not punished for coming to discover who we are. And in that discovery, we make mistakes, mistakes, and other practitioners allow. And not everyone can all the time. This isn't heaven. This is a monastery. We are real people here. But by and large, we help each other in the smallest, most beautiful ways, I feel. So what's the near enemy, the facsimile of compassion? This one's important in this culture. Despair and depression. Despair and depression. Seeing our own suffering, seeing the suffering of others, and having that feeling compelled to do something, which is bodhicitta, but that bodhicitta out of balance with the clear wisdom of seeing very often leads to despair and depression. So that seeing and that doing have to be kept, or that mind, that action mind of bodhicitta and kindness have to be kept in balance, or a practice crashes. If we don't sit in non-conceptual wisdom, we run the risk, if we are working on compassion, of drowning in sentimentality, too much suffering. Because when you sit, you see that suffering. And if you sit only in contemplation, for example, and not in meditation, then it can be. And the same, the other thing can be true. If you sit only in wisdom practices and you never do service and loving kindness and practices to open the heart, you can be very clear, very sharp, precise, penetrating insight and cold as a fish. Some people say, and this is less common, but I have had this teaching from teachers I respect, that the near enemy of compassion is pity. And I can see how one would say that. So I see your suffering and my response is, I will fix you. You are broken. This is a kind of colonization of another person's sovereignty. I will help you. Two mistakes right there. I will help you. So what does compassion look like as it begins to flourish? Well, no surprises here, I think. Our capacity for cruelty is decreased. Oof, we need compassion right now. For ourselves, how many people I meet and I feel they are unable to not be cruel to themselves burdened in the way they are by their own experience in this life. When we begin to, when compassion begins to flourish, we don't so often have to say, be compassionate, we can't bear not to be. So the suffering then is in our inability to manifest compassion. This is a tricky place for a student on the path when their compassion begins to develop and they so want to relieve the suffering of sentient beings and they kind of can't and all they can see is all the ways they can't and a student needs support 
to go through that stage until they reach the stage where they have some skillful means, some upaya. When compassion begins to flourish, we also stop having to remind ourselves of our unity and our oneness because those things arise naturally in the heart and the mind. It also, as compassion grows, it naturally flows into compassion for oneself and not in a self-centered kind of way, in a self-loving kind of way. So it's not selfish, even though it's focused or even when it's focused entirely on the self. It's not personal. It's loving the expression of a being in the universe. As compassion begins to mature, not only are we kinder to ourselves, but it starts to feel sticky to wallow in one's past suffering. Wallow is one of my favorite words. Wallow in zazen, wallow in shamatha, wallow in joy, wallow in sorrow. I grew up with animals, so I think about them rolling in the mud or rolling in the dust. to continue to create and live in a belief that I am my suffering. So this is different than I suffer. I am my suffering is less and less and less possible or less and less and less appealing or rewarding. So as you develop compassion, which also manifests as clarity and you see your true nature, it's harder to keep both feet in the story of suffering. One's own suffering, one's, not one's suffering, but one's story of suffering, different. And I think, I've thought about this a lot, I'm not exactly sure of the mechanism, but my sense of it is that part of us sees the story of the suffering and has that experience, but at the same time as compassion and clarity develop, we also see our identity, you could say, our experience as whole and vast and complete. And so at the very least, those things, if they don't integrate, have to coexist. In most of the texts that reference Buddhas and Bodhisattvas on retreat, the translation that our text had was the Buddhas and the heirs of the Buddhas or the Buddhas and the children of the Buddhas. So we are noble. We are to see ourselves and experience ourselves or will experience ourselves as noble. For me, that was a big leap. So I settled on Buddha in progress, Buddha in the making. All right, so what's empathetic joy? Empathetic joy, which Kisei was sometimes calling appreciative joy, which is right out of Buddha Goza. How did that word get invented in the fifth century? It's so kind of 1999, it's perfect. 
empathetic or appreciative joy is delight in other people's virtues, successes and joys. And of course, because of the truth of interconnectedness, if we delight in the virtues of joys of others, we delight in our own as well. But at no one's expense. But at no one's expense. What's the proximate cause? Noticing joy. I'm pretty sure that's why Kisei taught that. Joy arises when you notice joy. Joy arises and is cultivated when you cultivate joy. So if a person has a great deal of sadness and not enough joy, one of the instructions usually is notice joy. Go outside, practice outside. Look around you today and see what you have. This is not just true in Buddhism. This is, I would say, most of the Christian pastors I know would say they give this advice a lot. In our tradition, we have a thing that we're supposed to do that we say, I rejoice in your virtue. So if Hosen does something and he gets credit for it and I did it yesterday and I didn't get credit for it and I don't like that, then I will say, Hosen, I rejoice in your virtue. That was such a good job on the fence. And you train yourself to say it and at first you really have to choke it down. Can you say, I rejoice in your virtue? Not really, <laughs> not. But actually after a while, it's not so difficult. Because after a while, I don't really feel like I'm giving something away. And so I say, Hosen, I rejoice in your virtue. And I think actually, I don't feel so good about the fence, but I rejoice in the rest of your virtue. And slowly, 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 something expands in a very functional way. He didn't work on the fence, by the way. I'm making all that up. So it trained the mind in the right direction, and it's like lifting a little weight. You know, it's not a philosophical proposition. You just lift a little weight long enough, and it becomes easier and easier to lift. And then if you pick up something else, like a brick, it's also easy to lift, even though it's not the weight you are lifting. And so we train like that. I had a long period. I don't do it anymore, but I bet it lasted a decade, where I would say, I rejoice in your virtue and I'm still jealous. And then my teacher heard me say that one day in the office, and he said, no, no, just no. So I stopped. I said, well, what if I am jealous? What if he got credit for the fence? And I wanted some credit too, because I also did that work, but the day before when no one was looking and he only got credit because he was looking. And so I'm jealous. And he said, then you could look at Hosen and say, thank you for showing me where my jealousy is, my work to be done. You are my teacher. Mm -hmm. What is the near enemy, the facsimile of appreciative joy, attachment to sense pleasures? Chocolate. <laughs> when we feel joy, we're meant to feel joy. We're meant to be filled with joy. We're meant to even have bliss, but it should pass through, pass through. In a mature practitioner, we have grief, it passes through. We have sorrow, it passes through. We have anger, it passes through. We have joy, it passes through, because the only way it doesn't pass through is if you hold onto it. And that's not always by choice. I understand that. Sometimes it has little 
hooks in places in our psyche or in the body. I understand that. To antidote, antidote clinging to states of joy when we experience beauty or any sense pleasure in the Tibetan tradition, we enjoy it, embody that joy, and then we offer it to our teacher. So you could offer it to Jizo, you could offer it to Hosen, <laughs> you can offer it to anyone, it doesn't matter who you offer it to, but it's that way of training the body-mind to enjoy the thing fully and then let that thing go. If we are not discerning, if we stop paying close attention, the ener energy of joy can decay into envy. We feel joy, a little bit of joy from someone else, and then immediately we were drawn into envy. Or we feel joy in someone else, and our sorrow that we don't have that same joy causes us to feel cynical. It's a kind of wounding that happens there. So we have the joy, we take it in, we cling, and we're triggered in those poisons. So what does joy begin to look like as it flourish? It, jealousy, greed, pride, they recede. Joy is multiplied. I get my joy, I do get your joy. I discover that actually your joy and my joy are not entirely separate. And when that happens, I think contentedness goes up and restlessness goes down. And so meditation is more calm and more clear, naturally, effortlessly. There's another piece called The Guardians, but I think I'll let that be for now. And you can see it on the handout. I'll tell you one so you know how to work these if you care to when you look at it. So for example, the guardian, the, the guardian of one immeasurable is another immeasurable. So the guardian of loving kindness is equanimity. So you're meant to ask yourself the question, how does my equanimity guard my ability to be loving and kind? And so those four guardians are also four wonderful contemplations. So I would like to acknowledge that this is a lot of conceptual material for this time of day. I think it was Winston Churchill that said once in a speech, he was talking about someone put him on the speaking docket after lunch, and he said, the two of the hardest things are when are to climb a wall that's leaning towards you. Oh, then he said, well, pardon, but this was probably the 30s or something. Kiss a woman who's leaning away from you and give a speech after lunch. But here we are. So please continue with your effort in the four immeasurables. You had come so far before you came here and it's my wish that all of your work be multiplied in its efficacy and its power, 
not just for you, but for all sentient beings.